Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. Alright, and so this episode is going to be all about uh, the director Michael Haneke. We just wrapped up watching, I think, about six of his movies. We did not watch everything he's put out, but we watched uh, the films that are kind of held in highest esteem. And we saved one film uh, for me not to write about it on the blog, and we're going to talk about it here. And that is The White Ribbon. Uh, The White Ribbon is a 2009 German language film. Uh, written and directed by Michael Haneke. It uh, is in black and white. And the film darkly depicts society and family in a northern German village just before World War I. Uh, Haneke has gone on record as saying that uh, the film is meant to be about the roots of evil, and whether it's religious or political terrorism, it's the same thing. Uh, He was quoted as saying. uh, The events take place in a fictional... uh, Protestant village of Eichwald uh, from July of 1913 to August of 1914. There's an unnamed elderly tailor who is narrating the story, which is subtitled, I think, like a a children's parable, so it kind of hints at folktale, fairy tale kind of a thing. Well, he's not a tailor, he's a teacher. Well, no, he's an unnamed elderly tailor in the point where he's telling the story. Yeah. But he is the village school teacher at the time uh, of the events. And it's during this he meets his fiance at a point. So there's, he has things going on in his life. And then there's this other story going on that kicks off when uh, the town's doctor is riding his horse home, his normal path he always takes after having made a house call. And a wire has been tied on this path and it causes uh, him to be thrown from his horse and horribly injured. The horse, of course, has to be put down. And this is just the first of many strange incidents of people being harmed in Eichwald over that next year. So what did you think of the White Ribbon, Ariana? Uh, well, I knew about Michael Hane- uh, Haneke because we had watched more. Yeah, we'd watched more and then Happy End. Yeah. And Happy well, End. Well, we're going to talk more about those movies yes, later. But yeah. like one of the things with, uh, um, we're not really discussing it, more really stuck to my brain. There's a lot of films that we watch, and a lot of times when we do watch all these different films, there is this sense of being like, ooh, I forgot everything about this film. <laughs> but that's not the case with uh, Amor. Like, uh, with Amor. It's not a case with a lot of his films, because it's it's not as if he looking, he's looking for hooks. He's looking for intimate moments that are going to slap you across the face because either you felt something similar or you've watched something similar or you thought something similar to that. And White Ribbon is not just the sense of like evil within the children. It's evil within this village. Yes. Um, It is not this, you know, like a Stephen King thing where like, the, you know, the children are the innocent ones and the adults are the, the monsters. Or it can't be blamed on some supernatural other force. Yes. It's them. It's them completely. And when I think about the film, it is, it's almost like these tears of something bad happening. And they're all for reasons. But the reasons become like more complex 
despite the fact that these children have a black and white viewing of the world. When I think that the film is in black and white is intentional, so it's he presents it to you, to you in a way that's like, we're talking about good and evil here, yes. and then spends the entire movie blurring those lines where what is good, what is evil? Are there th- people who are evil as a result of the environments they're raised in? So how much blame can we put on them? if they had no chance from the moment they were born to ever be a good person. Yes. Um, it's very interesting because the f- further we get into the story, uh, the one thing we have to bring up is the narrator, who's never named, we'll just call him the teacher. Um, he is telling us about moments where he has no part, and no, we never see anyone tell him about what happened. Yeah, there isn't like a straight-up narration of him, and I found out that this happened... There is more narration when it is directly involved, but he is kind of introduced a quarter into the film. Yeah, he's even though he's narrating, he's certainly not the main character. We of the don't film. realize that he's not one of the one of the kids until later on. Yeah, and that was one of the things that kind of surprised me because he's like, I was out, you know, the Baron allowed me to go fishing, and I see one of my students walking on the rail of like uh, of one of the bridges, and that's when he has a confrontation with this child who is. Later on, you can tell there is a disturbance within him. This is not yeah. a spoiler of the film when the child is like, well, you know, I didn't die because he was walking on the rail. So that means that God doesn't want me dead and he doesn't want to punish me. And it kind of justifies his actions. Like, well, if God doesn't want me dead, then what I do is what God wants. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a very interesting film in that I think it's probably, of what we watched, I narratively it's his most complex movie when you look at how many characters and intersecting plots and subplots there are yes and i would say everything is resolved at the end in as much as haneke resolves things in his movies where you're never meant to be satisfied by the resolution but you are provided with closure where it's like and this is the end of this story i mean the the story ends with the World War One is broken out, and our narrator uh, goes off to war and tells us through the voiceover he never came back to the village. He never found out the exact truth about what happened. He has theories, but he just, for the rest of his life, he's going to live wondering about, like, what was really even going on in yes. this town. And um, within the film, you have Eva, who becomes his fiance and was um, a nanny. And I think you could almost say that it's um, she is living almost an opposite end of the life compared to these children. She her father is. I feel like, like he's a laborer, but he's not poor. It's also like they do need need her earnings, but it's yeah. one of those like she is seventeen years old um, when he when the main character goes in to be like I would like to marry her. Um, he tells her, uh, tells him that he will have to wait a year, and that's that. Um, so we do see a contrast between parents um, when you see the village, how well, the village children are treated versus how she's treated. Well, let's talk about like the parents here. None of the parents are named, I don't believe, or at least the fathers are not named in the yeah. film, from what I remember. Um, and their, their name is basically their place in that village. So there's the baron, who is a land baron. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people in the village who are dependent on the work that they do on his land in order to, you know, keep food uh, on the yeah. table. There is the pastor, who uh, punishes his children in, like, very brutal, dark ways. And 
has some very, I think, to a contemporary postmodern uh, audience, you're going to be like, oh, some harsh, like dark religious beliefs, but it's not too far from like the roots of where American Christianity yeah. came from, very Calvinist. Um, you have the doctor, of course, who we mentioned, who seems like a fairly innocuous character, and then there's a reveal about halfway through the movie about him yeah. that recolors his daughter's relationship to these seemingly murderous children in the community and what's really going on with him and where this wire came from that injured him. Um, and I think those are... Then there's a, a gentleman who is a, a laborer on the farm whose wife is killed at the beginning of the movie. She's moved from working in the fields to working in another area because of a previous injury or exhaustion, and then she ends up tragically being killed when, like, the floor collapses underneath Yes, her. and it was also a location that they're explaining within the film that a lot of the much weaker people go to work, and um, the wood is rotted, and they're mad at the Baron for having not taken better care when they had asked him to change it. Then there's a Baron's wife who is also a she doesn't seem she's not from this village she no. seems to be a, more educated and certainly not happy yeah. raising their child here and then it's, well, we, like they have multiple children yeah and we, we can't forget the midwife Susanna Lothar who was in funny games the original version played the mother there she had a small role in the piano teacher as a student's mother and she plays the midwife who is a very interesting character and whose place in this society is one of the more complicated. Yes. Because we, she has a, a son who has Down syndrome and she lives with the doctor in a way that to everyone, it seems it's not a like romantic sexual thing. It's just she lives with the doctor. Well, like she lives right next door to yeah. him. And we later see that it is a sexual relationship. And but, it was a sexual relationship even before his wife passed away. Yeah. And so we're not exactly sure what how the relationship is defined. And I think it's pretty clear that they each think of it in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And it also brings up the question of, is uh, Carly, her son, the doctor's son? Because we never hear any mention of Carly's father. And they never make a mention that she's been married. No, there is. She's, she's a widow, yeah. She's a widow. Like and her... so you're not sure. which, And that goes back to, I think, the narration uh motif of we're never going to know just like the narrator exactly what's going on here and so what we have to do is kind of infer and imagine the and fill in these pieces as much yes. as we can make sense of it um so the film uh has the these children that i never really felt were like that scary on the surface uh, yeah, there was, like, something so serious about them, and especially the fact that, like, the first time we see them, from my recollection, is after the doctor is hurt, it seems as if they make a beeline towards the doctor's house to check on the daughter. Yeah. That we later find out that the daughter is friends with them, and that interesting aspect of also, like, the doctor doesn't seem like highly religious but his daughter is she is always dressed in black she is always like trying to be like this like picturesque um child and then she has a younger brother who's five years old and he 
the mother had died during giving birth to him, it seemed uh, mm-hmm. as so. Um, we think for a second that maybe the focal point is going to be like the doctor's family, but then it kind mm-hmm. of expands through throughout with, within the village. Well, there's one thing with the uh, peasant farmer who works for the Baron. Mm-hmm. His eldest son takes his mother's death very badly. Yes. And so early on, probably I'd say maybe at the beginning of the second act of the film, there is the big harvest celebration day mm-hmm. where they are going to, you know, harvest the crops. And he goes through with a scythe and just decimates the cabbage crop that they've grown. And so for a minute I thought, oh, this is going to kind of become about him and he's going to be blamed for all of this. But then very quickly he has a perfect alibi that keeps him from being blamed for all these events. Uh, Because one of the things is the Baron's son is strung up and beaten. Mm -hmm. And they think that because the peasant's son chopped up all the cabbage, he must have done that, but he has an alibi. And so that's this mystery that's left there. Um, and so the, I, I love the way the film just kept like shifting perspective, even though we have this narrator with a com- comment from time to time, we would jump over to like a character and kind of explore what was going on with them for a while. And it would seem at first that these are just disparate storylines, but Hanake so like masterfully pulls all these strings together. Yes. So by the end, you realize why you would see a scene that at first seemed disconnected from the story, but he was either establishing something about one of the children, like providing them with a motive or letting you know a trait about that character that was going to be important later in the film. Well, it's also, there is no character within this film that gets an innocent light shed upon them. Yeah, not even the narrator. Not even the narrator, because he is sort of like, not aloof. He doesn't know these people well enough, and it is like this... Eva and him are obviously people who were not raised there, so they don't have a full understanding of what the background is, and it leaves them almost like naive to what is happening. And the best way that I could describe how he does the stories in this film with so many characters that are out there is like it's shuffling of the cards and then masterfully doling them out and organizing them in a way that we have to appreciate the way he does like it. Like he knows exactly every card that he's handing out to the yes. audience like he in knows order. the background yeah. and there's going to be like maybe two minutes of something but then you're also having to read looks, you're going to have uh, going to have to read silences the the performances of the children are amazing because and it's, typically was, it, like it's a Anna and Clara are the or no it's a Clara and Martin are the two main children that are kind of the ringleaders of the group. Yes, and even then, like he makes it, it is done so well because you feel as if these kids are the ringleaders, but then you also have a sense that they don't have full control, which makes sense because they are children, and we get a more clear view of what Martin's life is, but that mystery that is Clara like really yeah. does stick to your side because we really don't see her much within their home life. Because Martin, if I remember right, he's he admits to his father about uh, masturbating. Well, I think... Or having sexual thoughts. That scene, though, I thought that he was confessing to having done something else because... The scene wasn't, like, the way that he was wording it was so unclear to me yeah. at the beginning. I was like, oh, shit, he's admitting that he, like, whipped this kid. So it's it's the father, who's the pastor, interprets it as, like, self-abuse. 
because we see later that their father, the pastor, when confronted with the truth of what his children and the others have participated in, is unwilling to see it. Yes. He does not want to admit that, like, his way of bringing these children up has resulted in them becoming the monsters of the next generation, which is what Hanake has said, like, the purpose of the film is that these young people would have been um, 20s and 30s by the time World War II came around, and they would have been, like, the core of what, you know, the Nazi movement would have been. It wasn't just, you know... The Nazis couldn't have survived if it was just, you know, Hitler, Goebbels, and these people. You had to have massive support from the general populace well, it's also for this like to work. The bystanders that are quiet mm-hmm. about it or not understanding what to do. Um, the parents that either turn an eye or are doing horrific things to their own children in order to explain why it is that their children either become passive or just decide well that's the way the world works and when you think about it like 20 years between one war to the other like that's a blink of an eye to a Mm -hmm. certain extent so it means as if they were more comfortable in this sense of violence that occurs and it's a film that like feels very relevant to now i think for america because uh i love to read uh on reddit the different teaching education boards and right now if you check those out you're gonna find a lot of teachers who are in the middle of sort of covid related collapse in public education and one of the refrains i keep seeing is they have no understanding of why the children are the way they are and particularly uh, like upper middle school, early high school, and they're also talking about boys being more racist than they've noticed in recent years, more misogynistic, more homophobic. And there's a sense from these adults that they have a complete lack of understanding and therefore a complete lack or a complete inability to do anything about it. You, I read stories about administrators just completely ignoring rampant sexual harassment of female students in the schools. Yeah. And you can't help but start to think of uh, The White Ribbon. It's a film that, while he's basing it in his own cultural experiences, it's very much a universal film because you can look at any society where atrocities happen, and if you go back a few decades, you'll start to find the roots of that ideology taking place. Well, I, I would not claim that it's international because I think, to me, the fact that, like, I am non-white, I can't really relate to it very well. well I can appreciate it because it's sort of like, it's as if these, the like, everybody has been stripped away of certain emotions that they don't know how to respond to it. So there is just something in there that they're not supposed to talk about, but it's never clear unless it's on this state of like religion well i would say that it's not i'd say you can relate to it because puerto rico was a victim of american colonialism and imperialism yeah and so what this is doing is it's putting a lens on the imperialist culture to figure out what made them commit these atrocities well especially why how did they get this bad especially when it comes to the religious thing and the thing when i want to talk about like the tear section of the horrific things that they they did so the doctor has to go to the hospital for a few weeks but it's not he doesn't die the horse is unfortunately killed and then the second tier is the baron's son is beaten is beaten but that is that becomes more horrific because this is just a child 
And it's all kind of off camera, so we don't really know how severe it is. But we know that it's enough that has made the wife go, I'm not staying here. Yeah. I'm leaving for a while. And accusations are flown around, uh, flowing around because nobody will admit to what has been done. Everybody assumes that it is the begrudged workers that maybe weren't worked. Uh, well, because there's a they point out that the Baron is, I think, underpaying his laborers. Yes, and there is a huh. tradition that you will like fuck up someone's harvest if you aren't paid well. And so they're telling the Baron, "You're not paying your people well. Someone's going to do something." Like this is the result of it, and. His response is never, let me pay them well and let me figure out what's going on, is let me figure out what's going on. And when even when he clears up like that worker's son didn't do it, he still accuses them harshly in front of everybody that embarrasses them and takes away their labor because they end up like not being able to work. Well, it seems like every act that the children perform is based in a quasi-religious sense of self-righteousness. Yes. That they have deemed this person as a sinner, and therefore that person must be punished, and they will be the ones to determine the punishment. Yes. And this is fueled by the very harsh Protestant Protestant viewpoint that they've been fed since birth mm-hmm. by their culture. And it's ironic that the adults are so confused and confounded by this because it's the result of them, and they're the result of their parents' And it's this constant procession of just brutality that's culminated in this generation uh, that seems completely sociopathic. But their sociopathy comes from a logical place. It's if you tell me about righteousness and all of this and you inform me that I am part of these righteous people because of the church that I attend and the dogma that I follow, therefore I have a God-sanctioned right to punish the sinners in my midst. Yes. Because I'm doing this for God kind of thing. Um, the one thing that I still still is interesting to me is the Carly's abuse, the boy with Down syndrome. Yeah. And I never, I didn't really have a good understanding of why they would target the midwife. Like, what did she do that deemed her a sinner? Well, I think it, be- it has to do with the fact that, like, we're talking about a time that a child like that would have been shipped off somewhere else. Okay, so yeah, I'm thinking it's more that kind of, oh, the child has a deformity, and that is a, a visual mark of the sins his parents committed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And I gotcha. so it is this weird thing of afterwards with the midwife, the implication of her having had an affair with him, the fact the that... The doctor. The, the doctor of the things that she knows about the doctor. She knows intimate shit about the doctor, and she forgives it out of love. But I feel as if that's not love. She has self-hatred for herself in order to allow this to progress to the point that she does. Um, And at the beginning, like, they were picking on him. I don't remember what they said, but she does snap at them for having said something. Well, that's one of the things I like is the way Hanukkah, we never hear the most intimate conversations between the children we're always right on the outer edge of it. So we're like seeing it through the teacher's eyes where he stumbles upon them and they're in a circle having a conversation. They break up. Yes. And so it's, uh, I feel like Hanukkah is a great horror director, even though he's someone who shuns violence in these things. He doesn't like graphic violence, but he understands the atmosphere of tension. Yes. And so White Ribbon once you realize what exactly is going on here, it just you can feel the tension in every scene, especially near the end when uh, the midwife is frantically trying to get the bike from the teacher so she can ride into town, and 
deal with telling what her son has told her. Um, but what? Okay, are we spoiling the movie? Are we talking about it completely? Because well, I feel like that we're we're kind of wrapping it up a little bit. Okay, now. because like I, there's a sensation that like even though we never get the full story, it feels as if evil still gets away with shit. Oh, I mean, yeah, the idea is that these are the people who will lead the Nazis in their Holocaust and be part of that because they're going to believe they're righteous and what they're doing is correct, and that you know Jews and uh, homosexuals and gypsies and the disabled are all sinners and we can all see that they're sinners so therefore we're cleaning our society to make it as holy as possible that's how like the people from Eichwald are going to justify this yeah. to themselves when they're the adults who are all in these places of power or not even places of power just being bystanders because they had done like something similar as children uh, but yeah the white ribbon I would say Michael Haneke's best film in his career. Yes. It was, he'd been working on it for 10 years, and it was originally going to be a television miniseries, and I do like that it's a film, because I think if we had been given more time, we would have gotten too much information about the town, and I think keeping a lot of things just on the surface Yeah, because the problem is we get too much information, you start feeling sympathy for certain people, Yeah, and this is not the type of film that you want to provide that with no matter how endearing an acting or like a scene is you don't want that you want that to just be it's it's blunt trauma which is something that he does very well uh so that was the right white ribbon we're going to take a little break here and when we come back we're going to talk about uh, all of the Hanukkah movies we watched and kind of what were our favorites what we came out of this series feeling about this uh austrian director So we're back, and we are going to talk about the Hanukkah films we watched, uh, and I wrote about for the blog. And so those films that we watched were The Seventh Continent, Benny's Video, um, uh, the original Funny Games from 1997, uh, The Piano Teacher, Time of the Wolf, and Cachet. Previously, we also watched um, A More and Happy End in, I think, Last year, year before, so, uh, so we will we might bring those up as we're talking. Uh, so, Ariana, what did you think of Michael Haneke's films? Um, I think he's a very thoughtful person. At the end of the day, there is so going into this, I've never seen Funny Games, and I remember when it was like you and other people being like, Funny Games is so brutal. Um, it's not really a fun watch, and it's not as if I avoid those films, but I'm always like, ugh, like, what's gonna happen? And Funny Games turned out to be way better than I anticipated it to be. Especially with, like, the breaking of the fourth wall, which was something I remember you had mentioned to me, and I'm like, oh, that just sounds like... Well, there are people who've watched the movie that hate that. They absolutely hate it. Because they think the film's trying to be too clever. 
I had no problem with it because it's almost like by the winking, it allowed us to, uh, allowed me to be like, oh, this isn't real. And it's, but it comes with a cost. Like the, the reminder that this is not real comes with the cost that the ending is not a happy ending and therefore I will not be satisfied with it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, he's not a director that will fully display um, the violence to you. The, The most horrific parts of the violence are done off camera, but it's more like audible. Yeah, he the visual violence he doesn't really want like showing. But I think he understands he has a responsibility to communicate that there is violence. So often it's through sound. Yeah, and it's almost like indicating, I know for a fact that your imagination is worse than anything than I could show you on screen. Well, I feel like he respects violence, uh, meaning that he understands that in real life when someone is violently attacked or killed, it is such a brutal, horrific thing There's no way he could show it on film and it do any justice to the actual act. So what he does is he'll cut away and then he'll spend these long times, all this long amount of time in the aftermath of it. Yeah, I well, I think it's also a respect to his audience, either if people want to admit it or not. It's like he's like, you know what's happening. I know that you're going to imagine the worst of this, but let's linger on to whatever like emotional pain that's happening and the emotional pain i feel as if it 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 can be way worse than it the physical pain the emotional pain we can imagine that emotional pain we can empathize with someone with that we can sympathize with someone who's going through that emotional pain now he's not asking us to like like grieve with the person because that would take for a long ass well, time well think about it funny games he kind of does and i really like it does there's a long one take scene where two characters are just kind of left in the aftermath of another character's murder that yes. happens right in front of but, them we don't see it and i loved that he, the amount of time he gave to those those first moments of grief we're not yeah. going to see the long-term grief but he i mean he talked about we watched an interview where um, he really let those actors take their time and told them to only come out when they were ready to shoot the scene and to just kind of sit in what that scene was supposed to be about. And the result is, I mean, it's heartbreaking yeah. to watch like the anguish of these people. Yeah, and I mean like grief when holding on. I mean like the way that you like long-term being it, like when we talk about Benny's video. Mm-hmm. Benny's video, there is grief even afterwards for the death of this child. Or in, mm, I don't know if I would call but it in, grief. But in two guilt. different ways. You I, know, there's I, I, guilt yeah. and there's also like, there's, the the guilt is related to the grief with the following. The guilt of having this young girl having died and also the death of what you thought your child was. Yeah, it's, it's you've passed through a moment that forever changes the person. Yes. And so you grieve the world as you knew it before because now you're burdened with the guilt of what you know. Yes. You know and that the so, world is a very harsh, violent place. Again, he's never going to give you that, like, you know, months have passed and this person is over it. He's like, he's going to give you that instant or even like maybe a few days of like grieving, but it's never like full, but you still 
it still hurts to watch if you're the type of person that has any feelings when you watch these films. Once if you're interested in Hanaki, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend like watching his films chronologically because his earlier work is a lot more ideological than it is a narrative. Yes. Like The Seventh Continent, I wouldn't necessarily say that film has characters as much as it has representatives of an idea he's trying to get across. Yes. And Benny's video is a little better with characters. And I would say it's probably even Funny Games. Funny Games is a good balance of character and ideology. But I would say The Piano Teacher is the first film where it's like, oh, now he he's kind of worked through what he had to say directly about the media and violence. And now he's expanding yeah. his themes. He's going He's going to still have that in there. But he's going to look at more psychology mm-hmm. and bringing in more of the social, political aspect of things. Yeah, and like what I thought was interesting is Benny's video and um, Funny Games to me feel like two films that you can basically are companion pieces to one another. Mm-hmm. You could basically be like, oh, they're you know, Funny Games is a sequel to Benny's video just because you had the the two main Arno, characters. Arno Frisch and then the man who plays his father, yeah. Yes. Um, so, but it, they are films in which they are remarking about the upper middle class. The same with, uh, like, seventh, uh, The Seventh Continent. I'd say that's the, the common theme through all his films is a critique of middle class bourgeois people, like, who are very comfortable in their lives, who often don't think outside the bubble they exist in. Yes, like in Benny's video when there's like horrific thing going on in the news at the beginning and she's like, the husband's like, what's going on? And she's like, nothing. Yet or, she's staring at the video, like staring at the uh, television screen. Or Time of the Wolf, which is his response to like apocalypse movies, <laughs> where it opens very similar to funny games of a middle class family going to their like vacation home. Yeah. And all of a sudden the apocalypse is happening around them and they seem oblivious to anything that was going on. Yeah. And I thought that was, it was my least favorite film, but it's still not a bad film. I think it's, it sticks out to me because I'm not sure of what he's trying to say in it. And what I mean by that is, I would say Michael Haneke has a very cynical view of humanity. Yes. But in Time of the Wolf, there are moments where you're not sure if he's being cynical or not. And I want to specifically say, you have Isabel Huppert, who plays the the sort of matriarch of this middle class family, who we think are going to be the main characters. But then, like, a third of the way into the movie, it becomes an ensemble picture. Mm-hmm. But, like... When they encounter that unnamed refugee boy, who feral boy who's kind of running around, her first response is to actually be maternal and welcome him into their flock and try to protect him. Yeah. Uh, later, you have Mr. Azoulay, who is a an Arab-French man that they encounter at a train station who becomes a supporting character. And he's constantly focused on the idea of diplomacy and that problems can be talked out, even when, like, his own daughter is raped and then kills herself. Yeah. And but the one thing he asks people for help to bury her, and then also gives away her clothes. So it's yeah. this thing of like in the midst of hell, which Time of the Wolf is. There are these points of people who are clinging to humanity, and I'm not sure if he's trying to say. Well, then I'll talk about. I mean, the Time of the Wolf. I'll spoil. Uh, the film ends with um, Isabel Huppert's son, who. The specifics of the apocalypse are kept very vague intentionally. Yes, so we're not sure they if ask, a they virus ask. is this a war? We don't know. What? It's just something very bad has happened. Yes, something bad has happened. She doesn't know because she says we just the news was just saying that 
resources were depleting. But like her, and even Mr. Azale, like is constantly listening to the radio, but never offers any insight. So it's, I feel like Hanukkah is also kind of critiquing reliance on institutions. Like in the apocalypse, you're going to rely on the news media, but all of that's going to fall apart so fast. Like yeah. it's not going to be there. Well, her son throughout the movie has had nosebleeds, which is one of the many things that he points to. This could be a pandemic. We don't know. But the son appears at the end of Time of the Wolf to be ready to, like, self-immolate himself. He's going to jump into a fire that they've set to block any oncoming trains that might be coming and, like, destroy himself. And the reason he's doing it is because he keeps listening to people talk about the just, that there's 36 of them. And it's very cleverly done because one woman mentions it to the mother and yeah. she's very confused and you realize, oh, this is a cult. Yeah, and They're other people in the background keep talking about and it. And, yeah. like, this old man keeps talking about it. And so we see the son who has become, a, you know, selected mute. He's not talking anymore. Yeah. Um, he's just gone through so much between the short time. And it's funny because it's only been six days. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> like, it's one of those things where time becomes very malleable. And you get lost in it and you're like... How this? It feels like it's been going on forever, and it also just happened. It's. It feels very much like how it feels to be in this pandemic right now, right? Like time has become very fluid, and yes. it feels like you realize something was, you know, two three years ago, and you're like, but that feels like that was just yesterday, or that feels like that was twenty years ago. Well, to me, like three years ago just feels like it's been over a decade. Yeah. Like when I think of 2019, it just feels so far away. So her son has stopped from setting himself on fire by a patrolman who's part of this refugee community waiting at the train station and he grabs the boy and he's immediately like you know he's not admonishing him it's a very interesting way he addresses him and he starts saying things like you know you know you proved it you proved that you were willing to do it and that was enough and like i'll tell everybody that you were willing to destroy yourself and it's like that was heartbreaking like that was the last scene is one of the most impactful but, scenes but the last scene the last the last because he's telling he's trying to assure this boy that like everything will be fine and then it cuts to a point of view shot from inside a train and the landscape is very sunny and the train is running yeah but he doesn't give us any context we as don't to, know if people are on if they got on the train we or... don't know if this is from before the apocalypse like it's just a shot from inside a moving train yeah, and, and I can't take that as before because he does not do a lot of flashbacks. Well, I would say he has a common trait of playing with aspects of time. Yeah. Because if you look at Cachet, which uh, is a film he did in 2005 uh, about mysterious videotapes showing up at a man's house and him trying to figure out if he's being blackmailed or not. Yeah. And the final shot of that movie makes us question when this is happening because depending on when that scene happens it recontextualizes large chunks of the movie or not yeah if it happened before the movie started then we suddenly have a different understanding if it's actually chronologically happening at the end then it posits a potential future of what might happen yeah. next and so i think he's very methodical in presenting you with scenes that are displaced from the chronology of the narrative for a purpose yeah. because he wants you to like sit with that scene and try to figure out like, how does this moment relate to everything that I've seen that was said previously? Okay. So between the films, which ones are your favorite? 
Um, I would say from the early stuff, we're talking like Seventh Continent up through Funny Games, which okay. I would consider his like media critique period. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny Games. I think it's the themes of that early work coalesced into this one perfect little movie that is very funny. Like, it's dark comedy, but it's yeah. a very funny movie. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, it's just, it's so harsh in its presentation that I love that about it. Just like the characters that would normally get glorious deaths in a mainstream Hollywood movie are just killed off so uneventfully. It is just, yeah. the film is so disinterested in their deaths for a purpose, of course. Yeah. From the later work, the post-Funny Games work, there's a lot of good ones in there, but I would probably end up saying The White Ribbon is my favorite yeah. from those. Um was there a film, not Funny Games or White Ribbon, that you feel like is one you want to make sure the audience is like, you got to check that one out. It's Amour it. and Caché. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are the, the two top ones. And then... They're probably the easiest for someone not familiar with Hanukkah to like get into his work. Yes. Because they're the least violent of the they're, movies. They're like the least violent. I think Caché really like stuck to me just because it has to do with immigration, has to do with race. And let's do with once again, like White Ribbon, it's kind of an exploration of atrocity. Yes. And so it's one of those films that like has really stuck with me, especially the past few days, um, thinking about how, you know, we're right now in the Netherlands and they're not really like as racially diverse as like the, the States. Oh, yeah. And so um, the idea of just adapting to one culture when you haven't even been like welcomed fully and how this man just refuses to admit what he did wrong and a lot of what Haneke is is sort of like I'm gonna tell you what's wrong I'm not like you you told me he's like I'm gonna tell you what's wrong but I'm not gonna tell you how to fix it with back to that guilt thing all of his characters have some sense of guilt well he's like all of his films he's in interviews that we were watching have to do with guilt it's like they're about the family unit and they're about guilt mm-hmm. and they're about often our inter our interactions and relationship with violence in our everyday life and i think also another movie if i was like white ribbon is amazing but i think seventh continent is also one of those films that really stuck with me. It's, it's nice and like short and to the point. Like yes. it doesn't mess around. But it's one of those films that is like repetition becomes a thing. Like routine becomes a thing. And he's there's no indication that he's saying that routine is a bad thing. He's just showing you a routine that ultimately is going to be disrupted to a point that you will not understand why. And you're just going to have to make those ideas within your head of why it is. Because they're... Again, he's never going to give you an explanation. It's as if the way that I could describe the how his films are, are like, I'm just going to show you a very important moment in these people's lives. It's the most important moment they'll ever experience. And like, exactly. So I'm not going to give you the very beginnings. I'm not going to give you the ends. I'm giving you what is important. And like, I'm not even going to give you a lot of background information on these characters. I'm just throwing you into this moment. Amor is one that actually does have a full ending. Yes. But it is... Very different. Very different. Very bittersweet. But it is him coping with the idea that death is around the corner. And... um, 
it being with French actors is it's kind of interesting because it feels like every French movie, like you know, someone is cheating on each other. Yeah. But it is this a couple who's elderly who are dedicated to each other. It's probably the most tender film. It's tender, even though it is super heartbreaking. Yeah, it's it's a movie you're gonna end like bawling your eyes out probably watching. Um, but it's it's his least violent movie. Yeah, and so I think and I think Cachet, there is like a moment of violence near the end it's not like but it's not extreme in your face um and seventh content isn't really violent but there are moments that is just i would say if you have trouble with children being harmed you probably don't want to watch seventh continent yeah and the reason because (laughs) its ending will like destroy you and it's he just i would not like he's a pessimist in some ways but i think he said that he is very humanist as well, which is funny because yes. he says, has such a negative outlook. But I think it's it's that sort of, which I relate to a lot, I am so mad at humanity, but I just hope every day that exactly. something is fixed. Because it's you can like see the world if the problems had are addressed. Yes, and I think he is one that is pointing out the problems and almost turning it over to like the audience and being like so what what solutions should we do what should we do about this and um it can be pretty harsh but then there's also a strange thing of feeling as if you felt understood by him after watching these films you felt that he showed you something that you already knew yeah yeah he's he's figured out how to um put into images what you have in your head about these sort of collapse times, but you're not able to articulate. And But he presents it almost as like a very clinical, like, here it is. I've, I've constructed this scenario and it perfectly captures what you were feeling and thinking. And also like there is something comforting in his films and I'm not saying comforting and being like the visual or like the topics the topics are rough the comforting is if you watch this film there's always going to be at the least one actor that's related to another film so you have this understanding that he does like working with the same people yeah and by that he's taking care of them giving them regular work or making sure that they are blossoming within like the film now the fun funny thing about funny games is like he made the same movie shot by shot yeah and it was a box office flop in the States. But he also was like trying to send in a Trojan horse. Oh yeah, because he has uh, <laughs> Naomi Watts and Tim Roth. Aren't, aren't they both like non-American? Yes, he's. Uh, I don't. I want to say he's <coughs> English, but I'm probably wrong, and he's like Irish or Scottish. Um, and I know she is Australian. Yeah. And then in the roles of uh, Peter and Paul, the murderers, uh, he cast Brady Corbett. And Michael Pitt, who was in uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, he plays her lover. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, yeah, we may have to do the Funny Games remake at some point just because it's such an oddity. You don't get things like that very often where a living director does a shot-by-shot remake of one of their own movies in yeah, another country. Yeah, and it's also like this... Inter- his only English language film. That, like, he had done it because he was, like, he was offered, so he decided to go that route. Which, if you would have thought to yourself about, like, well, Psycho, wasn't there someone who did a shot-by-shot, yeah, and it did not do bad. well because they're just like, that wasn't... Well, I mean, remaking Psycho is just 
a stupid thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah, do better than Alfred Hitchcock. I'm sure but you will. I don't really, but now Funny Games, he has talked about his dislike that both versions have become cult classics. Yeah, like horror fans love them. And I, I, one of the things that I probably, that's where he and I diverge is he is not a fan of horror. He hates horror movies. And he think like he's he's a moralist about them to a certain point where he thinks they're bad for society because they he believes that they desensitize people towards violence. And I would say that you know he's not necessarily a hundred percent wrong, but he's also not right. Yeah, because horror is an element as it it is a genre. Well, where, there's so many subgenres too. Well, like there's so many sub genres, but it's also one of the the genres where women are allowed to shine on the screen. And, and there's it is, a lot of female horror fans. And there's a lot of female horror fans. It is the idea that you can stop when you feel anxious and then continue when you want to. It's a lot of people who've gone through abuse love horror. And then there's also like the way my friend Sarah said, horror is the only film that at, at the middle of it, the woman is believed to be going through it after like... That is true. The women are always, they're never lying about what's plaguing them it's a real thing like yeah and it has to be dealt with and like eventually like they have to deal with it but it's uh so that part i don't agree with him well but... I, also, I think part of it is also probably different cultures him being austrian and we're from america and media in those two cultures is probably a very different experience and so i mean i would be very interested i think that would be an interesting thing that michael haneke or just have women who are horror fans watch Michael Haneke films and have a discussion about it and talk about like their how they view horror versus his critique of the genre. I think that'd yeah. be very fascinating. I mean, also, like, Happy Endings... Uh, not Happy Endings, that's a show. Yeah, Happy uh, End. Yeah. Happy... Um, not, I was thinking about like more like and with uh, Funny Games. It's a critique on thrillers. Oh. Instead of, like... Yeah. horrors at the end of the day well, it's, it's the sort of like he was he's very clear in saying that he was openly manipulating the audience in funny games yeah and to him that was interesting like th there's a very infamous uh q a at the 97 con film festival that if you uh subscribe to the criterion channel they have it on there where they just keep asking him questions about like what do you think motivated the killers and just technical questions about the film, and or they're asking, or they're like surface level around plot. that they're trying to also go to just the actors instead. But he keeps interrupting. And he seems to be amusingly frustrated. That's the best yeah. way to describe it. that. Like these film critics who are lauded as being, you know, these you know barometers of culture, are so inarticulate and so afraid to engage with the film as this sort of meta analysis that it's just. What he's saying is not penetrating their minds. They just can't understand it. Well, it's it. not the narrative that they want to give out to their readers. They yeah. want to be able to say that there is a motive. And so it is, they're trying to satisfy an itch that they can't scratch kind of thing. Well, they, they want people to be um, titillated by violence. That's kind of what sells media, papers, news, movies, TV shows. And so having a piece of media that is even self-critiquing and critiquing the whole like industry is not something their papers are going to be happy well, with it's, <laughs> yeah. it's one of those things that like i think we've talked about this is as we've grown older as adults and something horrific has happened we cannot talk the justification will never be enough 
if you've yeah. had the motive, it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to make you feel better. And if we do get more about a background, it's like, so you're trying to make me endeared to this person who could have done better. So it's as if he's like trying to explain to you, like, you're never going to be satisfied. If I were to explain to you why these two killers decide to kill and then, you know, introduce us to the next victims that are going to come in, which does happen in funny games, like... It's just a cycle. It's yeah. a cycle that won't stop. He can't... We can't turn around and be like, well, you know, they finally killed this family, so they're finally satisfied and they're scared. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, what, and that's another one of his recurring themes is asking why in regards to violence. With Benny's video and then Funny Games, they're both very much about, like, why do people do these things? And he's like, I don't know the answer, but I certainly want to, like explore it and see yeah, maybe we'll, we'll with Benny's, you'll figure out something i don't yeah with benny's video it had to do with an, a news article that he'd read about a child who had killed another person and when they asked the child he's like i just wanted to know how it felt yeah then why'd you do it he said well because i wanted to know what it felt and then <laughs> when in the film when benny's father asked him well what did it feel like his son just kind of shrugs he didn't know because it was such a powerful feeling at the time that I think his brain just kind of wiped over it and was like, nope, we're not going to deal with that. That's well, I think it also has to do with the fact that like he asked his son right after they'd come back from vacation and his son had watched his mother basically break down mm -hmm. in the hotel. And become repulsed by Benny. Yes. And so it was kind of like, now Benny can't explain it because now he realizes... And he probably realized before, like, he made a huge fucking mistake, but he can't erase it. He can't redeem himself to his parents. The sad thing I was thinking is that America, I can't think of a director that would be our Michael Haneke. I think the only visual, uh, visually and pacing-wise you can say Ari Aster, but Ari Aster also clings to Supernatural. Yeah, he like there's a buffer between the violence and, and the audience. And so that allows people to go, well, we don't, have, we don't have to talk about this. Or I would say some of Denis Villeneuve's early work. But he's not American. Uh, yeah, French-Canadian. But like I would say <laughs> some of his early work, um, Incendie, it was that film, I believe, it was about Syria or Lebanon. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. that felt like that could have been a Haneke film. But even his, then, His work that's now not... is, is, once again, very fantastic, like Ari Aster's. Yeah. And so, therefore, the audience is almost, like, pulled out of their world, when in Haneke, he is, you're always, you're in a place that resembles our world, but there's something off about it. But it also makes you wonder what, like, American or Hollywood producers are looking for. And if, well, I mean, someone like Haneke would never get a studio deal in the no, United States. Because so he's like, not making the kind of movies they want. And, like, it's also interesting because when he talks about in his interviews, he gets a lot of grants for films. So this is not a director who ends up, like, with big budgets. He just sticks to what he wants to do. And then if it takes years, then it takes years to do it. Well, that is what we have to say about Michael Haneke for now. Maybe we'll revisit the Funny Games remake in the future, do something about that. But, uh, yeah, I think we were really recommending if you want to start with Haneke, Amour and Cachet are two good, like... Start with Cachet, Amour go next, yeah. because Amour will, like, fuck you up. And I, then I would say, like, the White Ribbon would probably be third. And I think it's his best one. But, like, he... Cachet and more are going to ease you into it. Mm -hmm. So when you get to the white ribbon, you've got to have a sense of what you're going to expect. 
and the violence is just going to be a little more heightened. <laughs> I would say if you're really wanting to challenge yourself, I feel like the piano teacher is probably the hardest one. Yeah, we barely touched on piano teacher, and, and that was still a very good film. Yeah, but it was like the hardest film, I think. A lot of people will say funny games, but I'm like, I think the piano teacher, because it goes so much deeper with stuff. Well, I think with piano teacher, you have a sympathetic protagonist that you're kind of uh. like, you... It's not as if, like, you fall in love with her. It's just... You understand her. You understand her, and even then you don't get the full picture of her. Funny Games is just um, a... It's like a cold knife. You're t- like, you don't know if you're going to get cut by it or not. Funny Games is more... Clo- is closer to comedy than The Piano Teacher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is yeah. true. All right. Well, that was what we had to say about Michael Haneke. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, Check the show notes for links to reviews on popcult.blog and anything we might have mentioned in the episode. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes are up. Our next episode, we will be reviewing The Book of Boba Fett and Peacemaker. So a little different uh, than what we talked about in this episode. Make sure to visit popcult.blog for more reviews in the meantime. And you can also support us on Patreon, where we have lots of reward and gold levels. And speaking of that, I want to thank our patrons, Amy and Matt, for their support. Uh, If you become a patron at the $10 or higher level, you get to choose a film once a month that uh, I will watch and review. Or if you want Ariana to review it, she will. Uh, And you can add some of your own comments if that's something you would like to do as well. So until next time, keep watching.